Wessex Tales. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tyg Hines. Fellow Townsmen by Thomas Hardy. Chapter Nine. Twenty-one years and six months do not pass without setting a mark, even upon durable stone and triple brass. Upon humanity, such a period works nothing less than transformation. In Barnet's old birthplace, vivacious young children with bones like India rubber had grown up to be stable men and women. Men and women had dried in the skin, stiffened, withered, and sunk into decrepitude, while selections from every class had been consigned to the outlying cemetery. Of inorganic differences, the greatest was that the railway had invaded the town, tying it on to a main line at a junction a dozen miles off. Barnet's house on the harbour road, once so insistently new, had acquired a respectable mellowness, with ivy, Virginia creepers, lichens, damp patches, and even constitutional infirmities of its own like its elder fellows. Its architecture, once so very improved and modern, had already become stale in style, without having reached the dignity of being old-fashioned. Trees about the harbour road had increased in circumference, or disappeared under the saw while the church had had such a tremendous practical joke played upon it by some facetious restorer or other as to be scarcely recognizable by its dearest old friends during this long interval george barnet had never once been seen or heard of in the town of his father's it was the evening of a market-day and some half-dozen middle-aged farmers and dairymen were lounging round the bar of the black bull hotel occasionally dropping a remark to each other and less frequently to the two barmaids who stood within the pewter-topped counter, in a perfunctory attitude of attention, these latter sighing and making a private observation to one another at odd intervals, on more interesting experiences than the present. "'Days get shorter,' said one of the dairymen, as he looked towards the street, and noticed that the lamplighter was passing by. The farmers merely acknowledged by their countenances the propriety of this remark and finding that nobody else spoke, one of the barmaids said yes, in a tone of painful duty. "'Come fair day we shall have to light up before we start for home along.' "'That's true,' his neighbour conceded, with a gaze of blankness. "'And after that we shan't see much further difference all's winter.' The rest were not unwilling to go even as far as this. The barmaid sighed again, and raised one of her hands from the counter on which they rested, to scratch the smallest surface of her face with the smallest of her fingers. She looked towards the door, and presently remarked, "'I think I hear the bus a-coming from the station.' The eyes of the dairymen and farmers turned to the glass door dividing the hall from the porch, and in a minute or two the omnibus drew up outside. Then there was a lumbering down of luggage, and then a man came into the hall, followed by a porter with a portmanteau on his pall, which he deposited on a bench. The stranger was an elderly person, with curly, ashen-white hair, a deeply creviced outer corner to each eyelid, and a countenance baked by innumerable suns to the colour of terracotta, its hue and that of his hair contrasting like heat and cold respectively. He walked meditatively and gently, like one who was fearful of disturbing his own mental equilibrium, but whatever lay at the bottom of his breast had evidently made him so accustomed to its situation there that it caused him little practical inconvenience. He paused in silence while, with his dubious eyes fixed on the barmaids, he seemed to consider himself. In a moment or two he addressed them, and asked to be accommodated for the night. As he waited he looked curiously round the hall, but said nothing. As soon as invited he disappeared up the staircase 
preceded by a chambermaid and candle, and followed by a lad with his trunk. Not a soul had recognised him. A quarter of an hour later, when the farmers and dairymen had driven off to their homesteads in the country, he came downstairs, took a biscuit and one glass of wine, and walked out into the town, where the radiance from the shop-windows had grown so in volume of late years as to flood with cheerfulness every standing cart, barrow, stall, and idler that occupied the wayside, whether shabby or genteel. His chief interest at present seemed to lie in the names painted over the shop-fronts and on doorways as far as they were visible. These now differ to an ominous extent from what they had been one and twenty years before. The traveller passed on till he came to a bookseller's, where he looked in through the glass door. A fresh-faced young man was standing behind the counter, otherwise the shop was empty. The grey-haired observer entered, asked for some periodical by way of paying for admission, and with his elbow on the counter began to turn over the pages he had bought, though that he read nothing was obvious. At length he said, "'Is old Mr. Watkins still alive?' in a voice which had a curious youthful cadence in it even now. "'My father is dead, sir,' said the young man. "'Ah, I am sorry to hear it,' said the stranger. "'But it is so many years since I last visited this town that I could hardly expect it should be otherwise.' After a short silence he continued, "'And is the firm of Barnet Browse and Company still in existence?' There used to be large flax merchants and twine-spinners here. The firm is still going on, sir, but they have dropped the name of Barnet. I believe that was a sort of fancy name, at least I never knew of any living Barnet. Tis now Browse and Co. And does Andrew Jones still keep on as architect? He's dead, sir. And the vicar of St. Mary's, Mr. Melrose? He's been dead a great many years. Dear me! He paused yet longer, and cleared his voice. Is Mr. Down, the solicitor, still in practice? No, sir. He's dead. He died about seven years ago. Here it was a longer silence still, and an attentive observer would have noticed that the paper in the stranger's hand increased its imperceptible tremor to a visible shake. That grey-haired gentleman noticed it himself, and rested the paper on the counter. Is Mrs. Down still alive? he asked closing his lips firmly as soon as the words were out of his mouth and dropping his eyes. "'Yes, sir. She's alive and well. She's living at the old place. In East Street?' "'Oh, no, at Shadow Ringdale. I believe it has been in the family for some generations.' "'She lives with her children, perhaps?' "'No. She has no children of her own. There were some Miss Downs. I think they were Mr. Downs' daughters by a former wife, but they are married and living in other parts of the town. Mrs. Down lives alone.' "'Quite alone?' "'Yes, sir, quite alone.' The newly arrived gentleman went back to the hotel and dined, after which he made some change in his dress, shaved back his beard to the fashion that had prevailed twenty years earlier, when he was young and interesting, and once more emerging bent his steps in the direction of the harbour road. Just before getting to the point where the pavement ceased and the houses isolated themselves, he overtook a shambling, stooping, unshaven man who at first sight appeared like a professional tramp, his shoulders having a perceptible greasiness as they passed under the gaslight. Each pedestrian momentarily turned and regarded the other, and the tramp-like gentleman started back. "'Good! Why, is that Mr. Barnet? Tis Mr. Barnet, surely?' "'Yes. And you are Charlson?' "'Yes. Ah! You notice my appearance. The fates have rather ill-used me. By the boy, that fifty pounds—' 
I never paid it, did I? But I was not ungrateful. Here the stooping man laid one hand emphatically on the palm of the other. I gave you a chance, Mr. Barnet, which many man would have thought full value received, the chance to marry your Lucy. As far as the world was concerned, your wife was a drowned woman, eh? Heaven forbid all that, Charlson. Well, well, tis a wrong way of showing gratitude, I suppose. And now a drop of something to drink for old acquaintance' sake. Uh, Mr. Barnet, she's free again. There's a chance now, if you care for it. <laughs> and, and the speaker pushed his tongue into his hollow cheek and slanted his eye in the old fashion. I know all, said Barnet quickly, and slipping a small present into the hands of the needy, saddening man, he stepped ahead and was soon in the outskirts of the town. He reached the harbour road and paused before the entrance to a well-known house. It was so highly bosomed in trees and shrubs planted since the erection of the building that one would scarcely have recognised the spot as that which had been a mere neglected slope till chosen as a site for a dwelling. He opened the swing-gate, closed it noiselessly, and gently moved into the semicircular drive, which remained exactly as it had been marked out by Barnet on the morning when Lucy Savile ran in to thank him for procuring her the post of governess to Down's children. But the growth of trees and bushes which revealed itself at every step was beyond all expectation. Sunproof and moonproof bowers vaulted the walks, and the walls of the house were uniformly bearded with creeping plants as high as the first-floor windows. After lingering for a few minutes in the dusk of the bending boughs, the visitor rang the doorbell, and on the servant appearing he announced himself as an old friend of Mrs. Downes. The hall was lighted, but not brightly, the gas being turned low, as if visitors were rare. There was a stagnation in the dwelling. It seemed to be waiting. Could it really be waiting for him? The partitions, which had been probed by Barnet's walking-stick when the mortar was green, were now quite brown with the antiquity of their varnish, and the ornamental woodwork of the staircase, which had glistened with a pale yellow newness when first erected, was now of a rich wine-colour. During the servant's absence the following colloquy could be dimly heard through the nearly closed door of the drawing-room. He didn't give his name. He only said, an old friend, ma'am. What kind of gentleman is he? A statish gentleman, with grey air. The voice of the second speaker seemed to affect the listener greatly. After a pause the lady said, Very well, I will see him. And the stranger was shown in face to face with the Lucy who had once been Lucy Savile. The round cheek of that formerly young lady had, of course, alarmingly flattened its curve in her modern representative. A pervasive greyness overspread her once dark brown hair, like morning rime on heather. The parting down the middle was wide and jagged, once it had been a thin white line, a narrow crevice between two high banks of shade, but there was still enough left to form a handsome knob behind, and some curls beneath inwrought with a few hairs like silver wires were very becoming. In her eyes the only modification was that their originally mild rectitude of expression had become a little more stringent than heretofore. Yet she was still girlish, a girl who had been gratuitously weighted by destiny with a burden of five-and-forty years instead of her proper twenty. "'Lucy, don't you know me?' he said when the servant had closed the door. "'I knew you the instant I saw you,' she returned cheerfully. "'I don't know why, but I always thought you would come back to your old town again.' She gave him her hand, and they sat down. "'They said you were dead,' continued Lucy. 
but I never thought so. We should have heard of it for certain if you had been. It is a very long time since we met. Yes. What you must have seen, Mr. Barnet, in all those roving years, in comparison with what I have seen in this quiet place. Her face grew more serious. You know my husband has been dead a long time. I am a lonely old woman now, considering what I have been, though Mr. Downe's daughters, all married, managed to keep me pretty cheerful. And I am a lonely old man, and have been any time these twenty years. But where have you kept yourself, and why did you go off so mysteriously? Well, Lucy, I have kept myself a little in America, and a little in Australia, a little in India, a little at the Cape, and so on. I have not stayed in any place for a long time, as it seems to me, and yet more than twenty years have flown. But when people get to my age, two years go like one. Your second question, why did I go away so mysteriously, is surely not necessary. You guessed why, didn't you? No, I never once guessed, she said simply. Nor did Charles, nor anybody, as far as I know. Well, indeed. Now think it over again, and then look at me, and say if you can't guess. She looked him in the face with an inquiring smile. "'Surely not because of me,' she said, pausing at the commencement of surprise. Barnet nodded and smiled again, but his smile was sadder than hers. "'Because I married Charles?' she asked. "'Yes.' "'Solely because you married him on the day I was free to ask you to marry me. My wife died four-and-twenty hours before you went to church with Down. The fixing of my journey at that particular moment was because of her funeral.' But once away I knew I should have no inducement to come back, and took my steps accordingly. Her face assumed an aspect of gentle reflection, and she looked up and down his form with great interest in her eyes. "'I never thought of it,' she said. "'I knew, of course, that you had once implied some warmth of feeling towards me, but I concluded that it passed off, and I have always been under the impression that your wife was alive at the time of my marriage. Was it not stupid of me? But you would have some tea or something.' I have never dined late, you know, since my husband's death. I have got into the way of making a regular meal of tea. You will have some tea with me, will you not?" The travelled man assented quite readily, and tea was brought in. They sat and chatted over the meal regardless of the flying hour. "'Well, well,' said Barnet presently, as for the first time he leisurely surveyed the room. "'How like it all is, and yet how different!' Just where your piano stands was a board on a couple of trestles, bearing the patterns of wallpapers, when I was last here. I was choosing them, standing in this way as it might be. Then my servant came in at the door and handed me a note, so. It was from Down and announced that you were going to be married to him. I chose no more wallpapers, tore up all those I had selected, and left the house. I never entered it again till now. Ah, at last I understand it all, she murmured. They had both risen and gone to the fireplace. The mantel came almost on a level with her shoulder, which gently rested against it, and Barnet laid his hand upon the shelf close beside her shoulder. "'Lucy,' he said, "'better late than never. Will you marry me now?' She started back, and the surprise which was so obvious in her wrought even greater surprise in him that it should be so. It was difficult to believe that she had been quite so blind to the situation and yet all reason and common sense went to prove that she was not acting. "'You take me quite unawares by such a question,' she said with a forced laugh of uneasiness. It was the first time she had shown any embarrassment at all. "'Why,' she added, "'I couldn't marry you for the world. Not after all this. Why not?' "'It is 
I would—I really think I may say it—I would upon the whole rather marry you, Mr. Barnet, than any other man I have ever met, if I ever dreamed of marriage again. But I don't dream of it. It is quite out of my thoughts. I have not the least intention of marrying again. But, on my account, couldn't you alter your plans a little? Come. Dear Mr. Barnet, she said with a little flutter, I would on your account if on anybody's in existence. But you don't know in the least what it is you are asking. Such an impractical thing. I won't say ridiculous, of course, because I see that you are really in earnest, and earnestness is never ridiculous to my mind. Well, yes, said Barnet more slowly, dropping her hand which he had taken at the moment of pleading. I am in earnest. The resolve two months ago at the Cape to come back once more was, it is true, rather sudden, and as I see now not well considered. But I am in earnest in asking. And I in declining. With all good feeling and all kindness let me say that I am quite opposed to the idea of marrying a second time. Well, <laughs> no harm has been done, he answered, with the same subdued and tender humorousness that he had shown on such occasions in early life. If you really won't accept me, I must put up with it, I suppose." His eye fell on the clock as he spoke. "'Had you any notion it was so late?' he asked. "'How absorbed I have been!' She accompanied him to the hall, helped him to put on his overcoat, and let him out of the house herself. "'Good-night,' said Barnet on the doorstep, as the lamp shone in his face. "'You are not offended with me?' "'Certainly not. Nor you with me?' "'I'll consider whether I am or not,' he pleasantly replied. Good-night." She watched him safely through the gate, and when his footsteps had died away upon the road, closed the door softly and returned to the room. Here the modest widow long pondered his speeches, with eyes dropped to an unusually low level. Barnet's urbanity under the blow of her refusal greatly impressed her. After having his long period of probation rendered useless by her decision, he had shown no anger, and had philosophically taken her words as if he deserved no better ones. It was very gentlemanly of him, certainly. It was more than gentlemanly, it was heroic and grand. The more she meditated, the more she questioned the virtue of her conduct in checking him so peremptorily, and went to her bedroom in a mood of dissatisfaction. On looking in the glass she was reminded that there was not so much remaining of her former beauty as to make his frank declaration an impulsive natural homage to her cheeks and eyes. It must undoubtedly have arisen from an old staunch feeling of his, deserving tenderest consideration. She recalled to her mind with much pleasure that he had told her he was staying at the Black Bull Hotel, so that if, after waiting a day or two, he should not, in his modesty, call again, she might then send him a little note. To alter her views for the present was far from her intention but she would allow herself to be induced to reconsider the case, as any generous woman ought to do. The morrow came and passed, and Mr. Barnet did not drop in. At every knock light youthful hues fell across her cheek, and she was abstracted in the presence of her other visitors. In the evening she walked about the house not knowing what to do with herself. The conditions of existence seemed totally different from those which ruled only four-and-twenty short hours ago. What had been at first a tantalizing, elusive sentiment was getting acclimatized within her as a definite hope, and her person was so informed by that emotion that she might have almost stood as its emblematical representative by the time the clock struck ten. In short, an interest in Barnet precisely resembling that of her early youth led her present heart to belie her yesterday's words to him, and she longed to see him again. 
The next day she walked out early, thinking she might meet him in the street. The growing beauty of her romance absorbed her, and she went from the street to the fields, from the fields to the shore, without any consciousness of distance, till reminded by her weariness that she could go no further. He had nowhere appeared. In the evening she took a step which under the circumstances seemed justifiable. She wrote a note to him at the hotel, inviting him to tea with her at six precisely, and signing her note Lucy. In a quarter of an hour the messenger came back. Mr. Barnet had left the hotel early in the morning of the day before, but had stated that he would probably return in the course of the week. The note was sent back, to be given to him immediately on his arrival. There was no sign from the inn that this desired event had occurred, either on the next day or the day following. On both nights she had been restless and had scarcely slept half an hour. On the Saturday, putting off all diffidence, Lucy went herself to the Black Bull and questioned the staff closely. Mr. Barnet had cursively remarked when leaving that he might return on Thursday or Friday, but they were directed not to reserve a room for him unless he should write. He had left no address. Lucy sorrowfully took back her note, went home, and resolved to wait. She did wait, years and years, but Barnet never reappeared. April 1880 End of chapter 9 that's the end of fellow townsmen.